classical music is not the end game in itself. The art is not the end. Classical music is the vehicle. And that's a talk about a narrative shift. That's a real narrative shift. It's not art for art's sake. I see classical music as a vehicle for all kinds of ways that I want to advance society around me. I, you know, classical music is a vehicle for social justice, for inclusivity, representation, gender, all of these things. I think, I don't know, it, it just goes back to the music is the vehicle, not the end result. And for me, that just really opens things up of what can be done. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you're listening to Forward, an interview series where today's leaders reveal how they use stories to make change and shape the future. If you need a new way to move forward towards your goals, then stay tuned, because I have just the story for you. When we talk about changing the narrative on big issues, we don't always think about the role data can and should play in that work. But Aubrey Bergauer knows from experience that weaving stories and data together is critical to shift individual behavior and organizational culture. As the CEO of Changing the Narrative, she's on a mission to change the way we think about and engage with classical music. In her former role as the executive director of the California Symphony, Aubrey led the organization to double the size of its audience and nearly quadruple the donor base in less than five years. A graduate of Rice University with degrees in music performance and business, her work and leadership have been covered in national publications, including Entrepreneur, Thrive Global, and The Wall Street Journal. She's spoken to changemakers across North America at events that include Adobe Magento, TEDx, and Opera America. I know she has some amazing insights to share, and I really can't wait to get this conversation started. So, Aubrey, welcome to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Denise. You know, leading change is tough under any circumstances, and yet you've been able to make major transformations in some really well-established arts organizations by focusing on shifting the narrative. So can you start us off by giving us an example about how you've done that? I think I'll start very meta-sounding. My whole brand is about changing the narrative for classical music specifically, and Long story short, I think a lot about classical music needs to change. All the stereotypes that we know are largely true, and they're stereotypes for a reason. It branded as elitist, the audience is aging, we need new audiences, we need younger audiences. You know, all of that is the current narrative. And I, so to be meta about changing that, I started blogging about it back in 2016, and that really became my vehicle telling stories through those blog posts, marrying data with the story that the data is telling. That's what I've been, started using, at least I should say, to really start changing a narrative beyond the organization I was leading at the time, but really on a broader level. So I don't know, blog is stories about the stories that were happening. I don't know. This is, like I said, this is very meta sounding right out of the gates. That's okay. It's a great way to set the stage, so to speak. So I'm curious, can you tell me more about your focus on changing the narrative for classical music? What's driving that? Oh, gosh. Well, I think for me, it goes back to classical music is not the end game in itself. The art is not the end. Classical music is the vehicle. And that's a talk about a narrative shift. That's a real narrative shift. It's not art for art's sake. And the arts have some intrinsic value that therefore people should donate and support it. I think, you know, that was the case for support maybe half a century ago, longer, not today. And so I see classical music as a vehicle for all kinds of ways that 
I want to advance society around me. I, you know, classical music is a vehicle for social justice. Classical music can be a vehicle for inclusivity, representation. There's so much conversation to be had about the composers we perform, the way we audition our musicians in a more equitable way and increase representation in the orchestra. There's big work to be done on how we hire our staffs so that we are not homogenous on staff. Same thing with our boards. Who are we recruiting? Who are we inviting to the table? You know, all of that. Anyways, classical, it's, our, it's my vehicle to advance these things. Gender, you know, is a huge one. It tends to be a very male-dominated industry still, especially in leaders, top leadership roles. All of these things, I think, I don't know, it, it just goes back to the music is the vehicle, not the end result. And for me, that just really opens things up of what can be done. So you're on a mission to change the world. Oh, gosh, when you say it that way, I mean, yeah, I, I think maybe yes is the answer. That sound, it sounds big, but, but it sounds purposeful, that's for sure. That's awesome. I love it. And so then how did you start to take that meta thinking that you talked about earlier and really put it into practice in the organizations that you were working with? You know, you and I were talking about this offline. Data is so useful to a degree to help us with decision making and when we talk about the arts, there is definitely a need for better use of data and data gathering, measuring, but that's not all we need to do. And so for me, it's always trying to figure out well, what story is the data telling? And I've also been in a lot of organizations, both as an employee and as a consultant, where we do become so consumed with the data that it's almost like, why are we even measuring some of these things? Why are we, you know, as a, were we measuring the right things? And anyway, so I feel like there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down if we're looking at just data. And then I say that as a very data-driven person. So to go back to narrative, I think it's, you know, it's always asking that question, what is the data telling us? What are we seeing? And so to give a specific example and this gets out of the meta a little bit, the data in classical music tells us that of first-time attendees, 90% of those first-time attendees never come back again. 90%, 9 out of 10 first-time attendees at symphony orchestra concerts never come back again. Similar statistic for opera and other performing arts disciplines as well. So what the industry has tended to say, you just heard me say it, we need new audiences is like the rally cry of classical music. And yet... By really taking a step back, and this was one of my earliest blog posts, and thinking, but why is that? Why is it that 9 out of 10 aren't coming back? And we embarked on some user experience research and really learned by asking new attendees about their experience, what was turning them off, what was keeping them away. We learned it's not the music that's the problem. It's not, oh, we need more Beethoven or less Beethoven, or we want more Harry Potter and concert, or we want more pops or, you know, whatever. It was none of that. It wasn't about the music at all. Instead, it was everything tangential to the experience. Your website reads like inside baseball, they told us. You're, you make it very difficult to choose a ticket and select a seat. When I'm paying a lot of money for this experience, I really want a flawless that is part of the experience and I want a flawless process online. So anyways, on and on and went. And it turned out the music itself, though, we talked about, you know, getting 80, 90 people on stage together performing at exceptionally high levels as professional musicians do. Awe was the feeling they felt. And so for me, I share this story to say that that was a real change. It's not just we need new audiences. It's no, that it's 
they're coming once and loving the art itself, which is the part we try to tinker with too much. That's a broad statement about classical music, try to tinker with that too much. And instead, I realized, no, it's everything else that needs to change that's keeping them away. So to get back to the question, I write about this in one of my first blog posts, and it was a real aha moment, not just for me, but for so many in the industry. That blog post went viral, really I don't know, flipping the script of it's not that we need new audiences is that we need to get them coming back again and again. They're coming. New audiences, we're pretty good at attracting new audiences. We just really struggle to retain them. So all of that is to say that that to me, that's the difference between just looking at data alone and coming to a conclusion versus really interrogating that data. And then a different story, a different narrative really emerged. Yeah. And what I love about that is you actually then went out and got a second set of data through a narrative analysis. Right. You went out and you analyzed the stories that people were telling themselves about their experiences and you look for patterns in that. And that gives you additional intel that you can then use to redesign your user experience. So it's, it's multiple kinds of data and bringing that together to saying, what's the future story that we need to design here for people? Oh, I love that. What's the future story? Because then that gets into casting a vision and then that's how you do start to create change. Oh, Denise, I'm all over this. Yeah. And so the piece that I'm really curious about is, so you get this great data, you're able to, you know, with really good data, show people that their current story or their current strategy isn't working. It's not about getting new audiences, it's about keeping the audiences that you've had. So how do you get people within the organization that you're working with to accept that new story and to buy into that new story? Because again, I don't think data enough is usually, you know, going to do that for them. I would say there's a couple ways I approach that. One is I talk about what works, not what we quote unquote should do. You know what we should do or you know what you should do. But instead, here's what we did. And here is how this played out. And again, that's a whole story in itself too, marrying data with a story. But there are so many, this is true in classical music, but true in every industry, I'm sure, just so many armchair quarterbacks. And I really get aggravated by this, this idea of somebody wagging their finger saying, you know, pontificating on what needs to happen or what you quote unquote should do. And I hate that word, what you should do. I'm like, who, who is making this call here? So instead, it's no, this is what we did. These are the results we saw. There's a whole narrative arc there, too. And, so, and the proof is in the pudding. Test, authenticate, measure. I, I'm very into all of that. And, and then again, there's a story that comes out of that. So I would say that's the first thing I do is really talk about what works rather than what I think might work. Or if, I, or if there's something I think might work in my consulting, you know, let's pilot test it. Let's not etch it in stone just yet, you know? So, okay. That's thing one. I would say thing two is addressing the fear. So especially, you know, when we're talking about change, there are reasons why we do it the current way. It's not just, there's the way it's always been done and that's a big one, but, but there's other reasons too. We make money. The current way we do sell tickets, we do have audiences come. It's not as many as we would like, but in some ways, like the pain is not so great that, you know what I mean? If the pain is so great and people are more willing to change, I would say. So there's some, I don't know, spot where there's like some level of discomfort or wanting some different results, but fear of what happens if this other way doesn't work. So trying to address the fear. And so with that, there's a story I always tell, continuing the specific example of, you know, if you make changes to the experience, what's your core audience going to think? What are those longtime audiences going to think if you start 
making classical music, quote unquote, more approachable? Are you dumbing it down? Are you, you know, what are, what are these loyal longtime patrons and donors going to think? And so that's a real fear. We don't want to alienate our, our core audience. And I get asked this, I mean, it's probably the number one question I get asked from the organizations I work with. So going back to data and story, uh, the data shows that our longtime audiences are actually very loyal. It's almost the exact opposite statistic, whereas 90% of newcomers don't return. It's the opposite. 90% roughly of our longtime season ticket holders renew every year. Like they're in. 90% renewal rate is like, that's a pretty great place to be. So they're sticky. They are loyal. They're bought in, literally bought in. And so we don't have to worry about that group so much. They're just, their behavior is so solidified. They're not really going anywhere. So that's good news for us. That's data. But then to put story with that, there's always somebody, right? There's always somebody who's a vocal naysayer, somebody, you know, who who isn't having it. And so the story I love to tell with anytime I get asked this question is when I was executive director of the California Symphony, I remember we had we had done all this UX research. We had made a bunch of changes. We told people clap when they like what they hear during the performance, not these unspoken rules about when do I applaud and all these, I don't know, again, just sort of like societal expectations that are really not based on much. There's not that much tradition behind when to applaud, to be honest, but I'll, I'll spare everybody the music history lesson. But I remember a patron coming up to me in the lobby and pretty upset. I could tell by the way this person was approaching me and said, you know, Aubrey, if you tell people to clap when they like what they hear one more time, if you try to talk about the symphony as being fun one more time, I'm out of here. I'm not renewing my subscription. And so, of course, there's always somebody not happy with it. But I always say, in this, again, continuing this example at the California Symphony, we saw our audience double over the five years I was leading that organization. And that's in response to these changes and focusing on retention. So one disgruntled patron, really upset, wagging his finger at me in exchange for doubling the audience, I will take that deal any day of the week. So addressing the fear marrying that with the data of yeah it's there's no, we're not going to make everybody happy there's no way there's no there's no perfect world where we do that but but those are the two big things i would say it's just really talking about what works not what we should do and then addressing the fear behind the change yeah and those two things are absolutely related right by showing people what works you build their confidence that they can do this that they can do things differently so yes. that they're more likely to want to try something new. And so I'd love to talk more about the, the idea of prototyping, because in my mind, this, this idea of changing the narrative and design thinking or design are really, really closely in, interrelated. Yes. And, and for me, one of the beautiful things about story is it's probably the most powerful way of prototyping or testing out ideas. Right. There's so many things that we can do in our minds or with other people, whether it's scenario planning, strategic foresight, role play, improv. You know, all of these things are great ways for us to test out ideas. And the power of that, as you know, is that by testing it, you make it safe for people. You de-risk it. So That's I'd right. love to hear more about how you're prototyping your ideas and where story fits into that. There, there are several different ways to test an idea. I think in, in the organizations I work with, we tend to think like we got to go all in when we're rolling something out. And I am and just to your point that you just made. Why? Why are we doing that? No way. 
Let's de-risk it for sure. And especially when we all tend to be very risk averse in general, we just were talking about the fears that we have, right? So no, let's bring that risk way down. That's absolutely more comfortable and honestly more strategic because we're not going all in with money, time, resources yet until we have a proof of concept. So how do we do that? A couple different ways. The first I would say is call it a test. Tell everybody in the organization, the staff, the board, if it's if we need to do it public facing, we can. We don't have to. It depends on, I would say, what the initiative is. But the orchestra and the musicians for sure should know when we're testing something. But call it a test. That's telling everybody we're just dipping our toe in the water. So easy. Not a big deal. Again, really bringing that risk level down. So call it a test. Also, other ways to help with this. We can say we're only going to try, you know, new thing X, whatever that is. We're only going to do this for three months and we're going to see how this goes. But this idea of like, let's just try it before we etch it in stone and just see how does that play out. So, okay, and attach a finite time period to it and tell everybody, then we're going to assess and regroup. A third way to help with testing is, especially when we're talking about the audiences we're serving or for other nonprofits, the constituents we're serving, we can test a fragment, a, a percentage of that audience. You know, maybe we don't roll out the new, I don't know, sales offer in the case of sale, selling tickets to everybody. Maybe we do it with just a, you know, a, a small group of, you know, 10% of our database or something. And let's just see how that works. And, you know, it's so funny. Anytime I talk about that as an option, I always hear the pushback of, well, that sounds like a lot of work, Aubrey. It's a lot easier to just roll something out to everybody. And okay, let's address the fear. Yeah, it is more work. It is a lot of work sometimes. But but when we know that this is what we're doing, the whole goal is let's is you know in the end this will be better. To to put in a little more effort now, test you know the sample size, see how that plays out. Because then Jim Collins says it this way. For anybody who's a Jim Collins fan listening, you know he says first fire bullets before you fire cannonballs. That's what all this is about. Is when we test this on a small level again, test, authenticate, measure. Then when we have something that has gotten to a place of working or a place of iteration where we think, you know, okay, some of that worked well, but we know what we're going to do different next time. When we get to the place where we're ready to fire a cannonball, all right, now we know, and especially for all of us managing nonprofit budgets where there's no wiggle room. I mean, I understand the risk aversion. There's not a lot of breathing room when we're talking about these resources that are necessary. So for me, I'm like bullets for cannonballs. And when I'm ready to put it all in, like I want to be darn sure that that this is something I, I feel confident will work. So all of those things, I would say, help really um, mitigate the risk, bring that, bring the risk level down comfort factor up. And, and then when you're done and you've done your test, you've got this success story that you can start to roll out. So how, do, how does that help you kind of sell the idea? Yeah. Yeah, well, and then you're so right. So that goes back to now what we everything we've said already. Then we have a story to tell where well, we did this and this is how it played out and this is what we're seeing or this is what we're hearing. And then you get to marry the data with what is that data telling us going right back to that idea. And then we do get to tell the story of it. And this pilot test worked on this small scale in this way. And now we're ready to scale it up in this other way. And that's really how we can bring people along with us. Okay, I see what we're doing. I see the baby step we took. And now we're going to take the next step after that. So yeah, exactly. This really starts to bring together a lot of ideas we've already touched on. Yeah, exactly. And so I'd love to know more about the how do you bring people along on the piece? You know, I was looking at some of the work that you did and 
And I think one of the big strengths that you bring to your work is uh, the ability to have a really powerful vision and bring people along with you. So can you tell us more about how, how you do that? There's a couple ways. I really appreciate you saying that, by the way. I think motivating mm. people, moving people forward is, it's tough work. So for all of us, everybody listening, that that's part of our job of, yeah, it's no joke to really, to move a, a large group of people forward. So a couple ways I like to do that. One is... I really talk a lot about progress, not perfection, anytime I'm with a group of people. And I would say, I mean, this is true for so many industries, but particularly in classical music, we are trained as musicians to be perfect. When we deliver a performance, it must be flawless. Anybody who has won an audition in a major professional symphony orchestra, flawless. I mean, really, perfection is the standard. You go to one of these performances, again, the music is not the problem. It's so awe-inspiring. It is, it, it is the equivalent of elite athleticism in pro sports. So that's the level we're talking about. So that mindset tends to permeate the offstage work we do. And that's problematic <laughs> because, we can't, again, we're just talking about pilot testing and trying and iteration. Like that flies in the face of perfection. And so I always, I, I try to, you know, talk about well, how did a musician get to be perfect? We all know. How'd you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, 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 right? Or Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of practice rule to become an expert at something. And so I try to remind everybody, progress, not perfection. Musicians only get to that exceptional level of performance because they did iterate. They did put in that work to try it again and do it differently. And, and we've got to adopt that same approach in many ways to the offstage work we do, the marketing, the fundraising, all of these other things. And so I talk about that a lot. I would say that's thing one. When motivating a group of people, moving a people, group of people forward, really trying to, and their story there too, right? That whole analogy to a musician, there's there's story in that. So, okay, progress, not perfection. We can do it. We can iterate, get better next time. I would say also really encouragement has become a big part of my work. I try to focus on, you know, what are we doing right and how do we hone in on that versus all the big body of work and things that are still before us. And I think it's a real fine line and it, to see, you know, I see opportunity in place of challenge, but also be able to focus on the good. And that's getting harder and harder, I think, in a world where we were on a, you know, in a pandemic and trying to come out of it. And it's just sort of more broadly been difficult, challenging time for so many of us, but to still focus on what's working and what's going well and, and, and what's the good to come out of that. And there's research behind all of this. Behavioral psychology tells us that encouraging the desired behavior or encouraging the outcomes we want to see, whether we're managing somebody one-on-one -on -one directly or communicating with a large group of people, it's far more effective to offer praise instead of consistent criticism. That's what the research and behavioral psychology tells us. And so I gravitate toward that in my approach because I've seen it work, both in the people I've managed directly and in, again, communicating with larger groups at, and organizations. So all of those things combined, I think really, or at least the beginning of how I tackle trying to make change, trying to move it forward. And it sounds to me like you're really making a culture change within the organization. 
Yeah, I would say within organizations, within a field more broadly, I feel, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I feel this idea of culture change is very, very fundamental to my work. And again, I'm just curious, underneath all of that, what's the role of story within that? Because my definition of culture is it's really just made up of stories about how we do things and how the world works. So what's your strategy in terms of identifying what stories define the culture that you're already in and then figuring out how to change them? How do you go about that? That's a great question. I think I tend to be really transparent in my communication. So going on this theme of how do we encourage the desired behavior versus only talk about what's not desired, it's so easy because back to being an armchair quarterback, so easy to be critical of what's happening in our industries, you know, in classical music. Wow, that organization was so elitist. Wow, that marketing campaign was really awful or, you know, whatever. There's just so many things we could do that tend to be negative. And instead of going that route, I try to think about and amplify the stories of others of, wow, that audience member came and did you see that little kid at the back? They were conducting along with the maestro. And like, how wonderful was that? Like that sparked something in that person. Or another example Again, in the performing arts, this whole idea of do we allow phones or not? And so two sides of that coin where people can say audience members are using their phones. That's so distracting. If they take a video, that's not reproducing the art at the level we want it to be reproduced. You know, there's a whole negative line of thought that can go into that. So instead of focusing on that, we focus on, no, somebody, somebody who held up their phone at a performance, they were so captivated by what they were seeing that they wanted to capture that moment and either have it on their phone to remember later or most likely share it with others, whether they post on social media or show somebody in their life, you know, just on their phone later. Like, that's what we want. So how do we amplify that? How do we encourage that behavior, right? Because then they're doing the marketing for us. So even internally, the way we talk about those kind of issues On that particular issue alone, there's two very different ways we could talk about it. So let's tell more of the stories of the people who are, they're not misbehaving. No, they're behaving the way we want them to. So I hope that helps to get at your question a little bit of, I don't know, a different interpretation and how do we really latch on to the, again, the behavior we want to see. Yeah, it's perfect. And you're you're really, you're reframing and you're really focusing on the positive. And so just kind of looking forward for people who are, are interested in changing the narrative, either the organization that they're in or the industry that they're in, just put you on the spot a little, I guess, you know, are there two or three things that you would suggest that they try to start to make that shift? The first is, I would say be data-driven. I know that's not the point of the, we're talking about storytelling and narrative, but I think in many ways it does start there. So especially for an institution that is not very data-driven, I would say start there. But instead of measure everything or whatever, we don't have the bandwidth for that. Nobody does. We're all lean nonprofits, anybody in this sector. So maybe I should take one step back and say, start with a question. What am I trying to answer? That might be the best. And then from there, okay, how do I begin to answer that question? Okay, well, that might tell us what pilot test we need or what, or maybe something already exists and you just need to pull the report from the CRM or look at Google Analytics to answer that question. And then from there, so question, then the data. And then what story is the data telling us? And really interrogating that to make sure that it is the, you know, the story is, is the right story again. And from there, then that's something we get to start shopping around. We get to start telling that story to everybody. And I give this advice all the time when I'm coaching others on how to make change. 
we have to sound like we're a broken record. Like to us, it feels like we're saying the same thing many times. I just told this report in my staff meeting. I just told this report in my one-on-one with my supervisor. Or if I'm a supervisor, I just told this story in my one-on-one with my direct reports. I just told this story at the board meeting. We got to say it again and again and again. And that's how we proliferate an idea, really. So I, I don't think it's rocket science, but I think it's pretty deliberate and dogmatic and repetitive. And from there, we know we've had success once we hear somebody repeat it back to us. Aubrey, did you know nine out of 10 first timers don't come to the symphony and it turns out it's not the music that's keeping them away? Anytime somebody says that to me, I'm like, all right, we've made some progress here. So that's what I would start to say. Yeah, get the data and then the story that explains that data and then really beat that drum to use a music analogy. <laughs> Excellent. And you know, that is really, in, in my mind, that's the perfect way to start out because that's, when you look again at this idea of design and thinking, that's problem definition, right? What problem are we really trying to solve? And you can't do anything until you get the data and you figure out what's going on and you make sense of it and you get really clear on what are we trying to change? Because if we don't do that work up front, we just waste all this time, money and resources trying to solve the wrong problem. And, yes. you know, we get attached to the solution that we're creating and we just end up, you know, with the train that's going off the track. So I think that's really, really excellent advice. Yeah, I love how you keep putting all this back with design thinking. I I mean, it's so on point. It's really great. Well, and, and it's all part of the journey. Again, it's not about the perfection at the end, right? It's a, it's about the progress and the way that the way that you do it. You got it. That's right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for for making time today and, and for sharing your stories and then the work that you're doing. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people out there who are, are, are facing a lot of the same challenges. And I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Denise. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to Forward, a podcast about how leaders use stories to shape the future. If you'd like to know more about how story design can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at denisewithers.com.